good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. I'd like to take this opportunity again to thank you for listening to the ministry of Let the Bible Speak. It is our joy to bring the Word of God to you week by week. And today I want to break into our regular studies on the Lord's Prayer to consider the important and pressing subject of abortion. It is never far from the thinking of people in this nation as it divides along religious and political lines. My desire today is to consider what is the thinking behind those who are defending the abortion of the unborn child. Perhaps as we understand their thinking, we can then begin to pray more effectively and perhaps challenge those who are determined to pursue this particular agenda. This is the first in a two-part series, so please tune in again next week to hear the second part. We trust the Lord will bless his word to your hearts today. Well, please turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs and the chapter number 26. And let's read just two verses of Proverbs 26. I want to read the verses 4 and 5. The wise man says, Answer, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. I am taking for granted uh, that I have before me tonight uh, a sympathetic audience. I presume that most of you here, I would even go as far as say, I presume that all of you here are opposed to the abortion of the unborn child. I say that because I had to catch myself a little bit this past week. I don't want to be lazy in my argument tonight. I don't want to be careless, and I want to be clear as to why we should take on this topic. If you already all agree, then what's the point in talking about tonight? I want to make sure that we're clear as to why we are doing this. I want to make us think tonight. I want us to be clear. I suppose in part, in part I want to help perhaps some of the young people who are growing up in this congregation and at this point have, have never heard a sermon on the subject. It has been preached on before, I know that, but perhaps not in recent years. And so that in itself is a, is a good enough reason. For others it may be a helpful reminder. But for all of us, I think if we understand the thinking behind the pro-abortion movement, I, I think understanding their thinking will actually help us individually as we seek to reach out to lost souls. If we understand something of the, the worldview and the mindset, I think that worldview and mindset is, is very present throughout this present evil age. And so tonight I want to try to understand what is behind the thinking of the pro-abortion movement. The first book that I ever read on the subject was printed back in 1984. 
It's, I've still got it. It's in my hand right now. Banner of Truth, open your mouth to the dumb. Printed in 1984. The opening page of that booklet mentions another book referring to the abortion movement as the silent holocaust. It's a very emotive term. Of course, brings all sorts of things to your mind. But if this booklet printed in 1984, could refer to abortion as a silent holocaust? How much more do we find ourselves in that situation today? Many, many years later. I think we were all taken aback by the scenes in New York as the legislators there applauded and celebrated the extension of the abortion laws in that state. And as I watched some of those scenes, what came to my mind was, just what are they thinking? What's the worldview that rests behind such actions? It's out of the heart that these things flow. So what's in the heart and the mind of the ungodly that they would celebrate the extension of such wicked laws? How would they rejoice in laws giving freedom to people to destroy life? And so tonight, I'd like to answer a fool according to his folly. Lest he be wise in his own conceit. And you will note that there's a, uh, there's a back-to-back verses in the, in the text I read to you in Proverbs chapter 26. We must be careful that we don't engage in foolishness as we engage with the folly of this world. We don't really like them. Sometimes we, we give them far too much credence and uh, as a popular phrase might be, airtime. There are some things that are just far too stupid to even answer. But we have clearly words of a wise man here that the danger of the fool in his folly is that he would believe that he's wise and exercise that wisdom and pride. He'd be marked by conceit, a sense of self-righteous pride. And so if we will not answer them according to their folly, then they they will continue to cheer and celebrate and pat themselves in the back as they promote so-called freedom. So let's think about this together. I want to examine just in three areas. Again, I'm very mindful. I read broadly in the past week, and I'm I'm very mindful that there are very, very many avenues of thought that we can go down. I, I want to restrict myself to three. But I think by the end you will see that there are three vital areas of thinking that will, I trust, seal the situation within our own minds. The first thing is this. Their thinking is wrong regarding the nature of humanity. The pro-abortion movement, their thinking is wrong regarding the nature of humanity. And I'm asking a question here. What makes a human being human? And what constitutes life? How do we know something is living? You can see various definitions, scientifically, practically. We might think in terms of growth. We might think in terms of multiplication. We might think of something that uses energy. Children, you're doing your your biology, you'll understand some of those terms regarding how you prove life. The thing is, by absolutely any scientific definition the embryo was alive no matter how you want to define it and and cut your cake in every single definition 
The embryo must be constituted as living. That's true of the embryo. It's also, of course, true of the unborn fetus. So living is pretty straightforward. How does the scientific world then define humanity? How do we know that something is human and not a dog? How do we understand humanity? Well, of course, it's by our DNA. It's by our genetic makeup. Our DNA renders us as human and not animal. We are what we are because of the the coding of our of our individuality by our DNA structure. The Christians shouldn't fear that. That is how God has made us. God in his wisdom has created these building blocks of, of living beings. Made by this matter of genetic structure known as, as DNA. And that constitutes our humanity. And therefore, if you're thinking about what constitutes living humanity... Some scientific writers have said this. The human embryo has within it all of the internal information needed, including chiefly its genetic constitution, and it has all the active disposition to develop itself to the mature stage of a human organism. So in the very basic elements of of the embryo and the dividing cells, there is everything informationally and everything That's required to develop that embryo into the mature stage of a human organism. Let me put it to you in in very simple terms. I I don't want to go down the lines of of multiple scientific definitions tonight. That's not my purpose. But putting it very simply, there is no point between conception and birth where a human being becomes more human or more living. I don't care if people will look at me and say that's far too simplistic. There is no point between conception and birth where that embryo becomes more living or more human. Think about it. We need to answer the fool according to his folly. It's impossible to be more living. You're either alive or dead. There can be no development in life. And so there is no point between conception and birth, that a potential life becomes a living life. That's folly. It's scientifically foolish. The unborn child, going back to the fetus, going back to the embryo, is a living human being. The same writers say this. This means that the embryo has the same nature. In other words, it's the same kind of entity from fertilization onward. There is only a difference in degree of maturation, not in kind between any of the stages from embryo to fetus, infant, and so on. So we understand there are various stages of maturity or development, but not any development in the essence of what constitutes living humanity. So somehow, some in the abortion movement have convinced themselves that the unborn child is not a living human being. Not all. I'll say more of that later on, but there are some who have convinced themselves that it's not a living human being, it's potential life or some form like that. Once you admit that the unborn child is a living human being, well, then you must admit that you're willing to destroy a living human being. 
There is actually an anomaly in this, when they do the, the research data in, in this nation. The majority still believe that the unborn child is a living human being, and then for other reasons, we'll still defend abortion. We'll say more of that later on. But let's be clear of this. The unborn child is a living, living human being. And that true scientific view of humanity is entirely in accord with the teaching of Scripture. The unborn child is always deemed a human being in Scripture. Always, without exception. And it's important again that we remind ourselves, science is God's general revelation. The Bible is God's special revelation. And they are not in conflict ever. That's not possible. God cannot present truth and error through revelation. Science and scripture must always come together in unity. And they must always agree. When they don't agree, it's because of a false view of science. So let's examine what the Bible says regarding the unborn child. And the unborn child as living, as human, and as a person. I have five, I have five testimonies to present to you tonight. The first one is Psalm 139. Please turn back to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is, is a very pivotal poem if you like, regarding the nature of of humanity. There are clearly language in verse 13 regarding the nature of of God's creative work in the womb. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. What I want to highlight, though, is this. And we'll see more of those verses in a minute or two. But I want you to notice in verse number 3, where the psalmist says that the Lord is acquainted with all his ways. He's describing the fact that the living God is acquainted with his person. That God and man, they interact. There's a knowledge. The God of heaven has a knowledge of the person, the psalmist. And as the psalmist then defends that view, he defends it on the basis of God's omniscience. God knows all things. He defends it on the basis of God's omnipresence. But then he defends it on the basis of God's creative purpose, even within the womb. And so he defends that. He he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. How is God acquainted with all our ways? Because we're made with the very fingers of God. We're made by God. Sometimes we, we understand that God, in a particular way, made Adam and Eve. But the psalmist here is making it clear that each and every one of us can say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Not that we fearfully and wonderfully happen to come about by the course of nature. But rather, we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Let's let's, let's not dilute the terms by speaking about what nature does. Nature is impersonal. It's a personal God that makes us in our mother's womb. And we have it here in very clear terms. Look at verse number 16. Thine eyes did see my substance yet being unperfect. That that language refers to the undifferentiated embryo. It's the Hebrew language for such a thing. That of course, as, as the embryo develops in the mother's womb, there is the formation of, of human structures like arms and, and legs and such things. But here the psalmist 
goes back before that stage to the unformed, unperfect substance. Even then, God's at work in the minute details of that dividing embryonic form. Undifferentiated, if you like, that embryonic form, that imperfect substance, that's absolutely identified with the person, the psalmist. That's testimony number one. Then Job chapter 31, and the verse number 15. Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? At no point is there a time when the person was not the person in the womb. They were made in the womb, and they can speak of themselves out of the womb as being made in the womb. The scriptures is unapologetic in the personality of the unborn child, even within the womb. You see him in Jeremiah chapter 1. Turn uh, quickly, please, to Jeremiah chapter 1. In the verse number 5, the prophet says, or God says, To the prophet, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. This is not potential life. This is real, individual, personality in life, sanctified by God prior to coming forth out of the womb. All I'm showing you right now is the Bible is clear in its testimony. That the unborn child is viewed as a personal human being, as an individual humanity. But let me go once more to the book of Luke. Please turn to Luke. What is significant, of course, is that Luke is a doctor. Luke is a physician. I want to show you a very interesting thing in the language that Luke uses. Luke chapter 1 and the verse number 41. And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. Also down in the verse number 44, and lo, as soon as the voice of thy salutation sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Of course, the babe here is referring to John the Baptist in his unborn state. Keep that in mind and turn to chapter 2. And the verse number 12. And the angel speaking here, this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Verse 16. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. The word babe used for John the Baptist is the very same word used for the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes, namely our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Same word used. No differentiation. An understanding by the doctor Luke that the unborn child was as much a babe as the newborn Jesus was. What confirms even more is Luke chapter 18. You remember the same author? And the same author writing in these things and Luke in chapter 18, the verse 15 says, And they brought unto him also infants that he would touch them. The word infants in the original is the same word for babe used in chapter 1 and chapter 2. 
And so there is, there is no differentiation in the nature of humanity between the unborn John the Baptist, the newborn Jesus, and these young infants as the Lord makes his way towards Jerusalem. Same word used. Very clear testimony, I believe, to the personality and the humanity of the unborn. I have one last testimony, and it is perhaps most important. Turn back, please, to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and the verse number 35. The angel speaking to Mary, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. We often refer to the miracle of the virgin birth. The birth itself was ordinary. The conception was miraculous. And so at the conception of our Lord and Saviour, there is the joining of a true humanity to the deity of our Lord and Saviour. And that happened at the time of conception. Proving, I believe, without any doubt whatsoever, that from conception there is true living humanity. So I think the testimony is very clear. That in the word of God, the unborn child is viewed as an individual living human being. Thus, in the word of God, you would not be surprised if I told you that the act of killing the unborn is viewed as murder. There's a consistency in the word of God. If the unborn is a living human being, then you'd expect to find in the word of God evidence that to kill the unborn is to commit murder. And that's exactly what you find. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 20, please. I have two testimonies here that I want to present to you regarding this assertion. Jeremiah chapter 20 and the verse number 17. It's describing it. I don't want to get into the context of the text. I just want to show you the text itself. It says, Because he slew me not from the womb, or that my mother might have been my grave, and her womb to be always great with me. All I want you to see is that here we find a description of death within the womb that is not given the euphemistic term of termination or even abortion, but rather is given the word slew. To kill within the womb is to slay. It is to commit an act of violence against the unborn within the womb. If that's not clear enough, please turn back to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. And here we have the giving of the law. And it's the verse number 22 that I want you to look at. Exodus 21, the verse number 22. If men strive and hurt a womb with child, so that her fruit depart from her, and yet no mischief follow, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. And if any mischief follow, then thou shalt give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, etc. Now this portion has been open to, to various interpretations. There is one that I think is most consistent with the word of God and also with the language used here. The pictures of, of men fighting. And as they fight, 
I imagine the scenario may have been uh, that an expectant woman comes in between these men who are fighting. And as they are fighting, she is hurt in the process. So that, as it says here, her fruit depart from her. It's a description of of birth. Now, here is the first point that has some degree of of controversy. There are some who suggest that this is referring to a miscarriage, a stillbirth. And then the mischief will refer to mischief to the woman. Rather, it seems to be that the men are striving and they hurt a woman with child so that her fruit depart from her and it's a premature birth, an untimely birth, not coming to full term, but an early birth. And if through that early birth there is no following mischief, then the punishment will be to pay a fine. But if through that untimely birth there is then the death of the newborn, then it's life for life, eye for eye. You see, if you, if you see as miscarriage, there is the potential that you would see the life of the child as being of lesser value than the woman. Yes, if, if, if mischief comes to the woman, well then, then there's going to be eye for eye. There's going to be life for life. But I think the understanding is this. And this is held by, by many good commentators. That what is happening here is there is an early birth. And if the child lives, then it's a fine for the act. But the child dies, then it's life for life. And I think it's an indication again that the life of the unborn is every bit as valuable as the life of the mother. Calvin took that view. Calvin said this. The fetus... Though enclosed in the womb of his mother, is already a human being. It was Calvin's view. He concluded the passage referred, yes, to the possible death of either mother or child, but views mother and child as being equal in terms of the punishment that would then be given. The child's life also required life for life, just as much as the mother's. Calvin said this. As he protested against the murder of the unborn, he said this. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field. Because a man's house is his place of most secure refuge. It ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. The place that ought to offer the most protection has become the place that is now most dangerous for people in this world. Statistically, there is virtually no more dangerous place in North America than to be in the mother's womb. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.